The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Uh, in his 14-volume A History of Soviet Russia, E.H. Carr, uh, British historian, I've read all 14, no, I haven't, but uh, <laughs> wrote, quote, the February Revolution of 1917 was the spontaneous outbreak of a multitude exasperated by the privations of the war. The revolutionary parties played no direct part in the making of the revolution. They did not expect it and were at first somewhat nonplussed by it. The creation at the moment of the revolution of a Petrograd Soviet of workers' deputies was a spontaneous act of a group of workers without central direction. And that's the conventional explanation. You know, the Tsar was an idiot, which he was, and he had bumbling advisors, and they were bumbling, uh, but the, and the war's effects were so devastating, the people just rose up and overthrew uh, the Tsar. And there's remarkable agreement about that interpretation of history from political forces that rarely agree. So William Chamberlain, who uh, wrote a classic Western history of uh, the Russian Revolution, wrote, quote, the collapse of the Romanov autocracy was one of the most leaderless, spontaneous, anonymous revolutions of all time. The Russian anarchist Volin wrote, quote, the action of the masses was spontaneous, logically climaxing a long period of concrete experience and moral preparation. This action was neither organized nor guided by any political party. Trotsky, who was in New York City in February, argued, quote, not a single organization called for strikes that day. And he goes on to uh, also argue that parties played no useful role in the events. In Marxism in the Party, British socialist John Molyneux writes, quote, the February Revolution was, of course, not led by the Bolsheviks nor by any political party. And last one, in his second volume on lending all power to the Soviets, Tony Cliff wrote, the revolution was completely spontaneous and unplanned. So I want to argue a, a different view today. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I, I do think their explanations obscure the real story of what it took to end Tsarism and hide some valuable lessons for socialists today. The reality is revolutions don't just happen. Um, we have to understand the interplay of spontaneity and organization, of contingency and conscious action. And revolutions happen when society is stretched to its breaking point, economically and politically, but they don't happen in a vacuum. And they you know, they can win or they can lose. They can often stall. And if a revolution stalls, that's pretty much a recipe for disaster. Um, nothing is preordained. And in that situation, socialists, educated in history, steeled in struggle, can play a decisive role. But the spontaneous formulation, on the other hand, and I think it's sort of against basic logic, places us, or socialists, on the sidelines. I mean, think about it. Here you have people who have built socialist organization in advance of a revolutionary period. They've struggled for years on the shop floor. They've agitated for revolutionary change, for the overthrow of the czar. But despite their entire life's effort being dedicated to this task, despite working in the very factories that lead the revolution, they are caught completely unaware. And then, during the revolution, they're useless, they're confused, they're upset, they're nonplussed. Like, oh, I'm sorry. And then right after that, they get right back out there, they win the confidence of the class, they organize, and they help lead uh, you know, workers' power. Uh, in reality, socialists, Bolsheviks, and others that I'm going to discuss uh, were involved at every stage of the revolutionary process in Russia, and I don't think that should surprise us. Before I get into the meat of the talk, just a quick note on sources. Um, much of the received wisdom on February as spontaneous comes from memoirs that were written by uh, people that took part in those uh, events in the 1920s in the Soviet Union. Um, and this was a time when a rising bureaucracy was seeking political justification uh, for its actions, and it was mining history to do so, in some cases inventing history. Um, so I, f I think that that material can be difficult, especially in a 
short talk, uh, although not impossible to use. Um, I've generally tried to avoid using it except when uh, there's independent corroboration or people are speaking against their own interests or making an, voicing an opinion that was out of favor at the time. Instead, I've largely drawn on material, some of which has become available since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, that was created at the time of the events. So leaflets, letters, newspapers, and uh, pol secret police reports, which are particularly valuable because the Okrana had agents in all the socialist parties, often in the leadership, and uh, their dispatches give us a unique window into what, what these groups were thinking. So on to the talk. Um, the argument for spontaneity usually rests on some combination of four major myths about the February Revolution. Major myth one is that because all the leaders were in exile, there, were no, there was no real socialist organization in Russia capable of influencing events. Major myth two, no socialist knew the revolution was coming. Major myth three is that socialists spent the revolution playing catch-up, never able to provide a useful lead. Uh, and finally, uh, the fourth myth that's often posed as a question, which is, if socialists were in the leadership of the revolution, how do you explain their subsequent poor representation in the Soviet and provisional government? Um, so I'm going to take each of those in turn in this talk and in the process draw out the critical role I think socialist intervention did play. The talk is going to be focused in Petrograd because that's where the revolution largely took place. So myth number one, no socialist or organizations capable of leading the class were there at the time. Um, now it's true, many of the people who we think of leaders of these revolutionary parties were in exile in February, only returning in the following months. Uh, but there was still an organized socialist presence. And in fact, there were five main groups or groupings that uh, helped lead the February Revolution. And not every worker or soldier thought of themselves as necessarily aligned with one of these groups. But in practice, these groups provided political leadership. And they didn't just appear in February, they've been organizing for years. Uh, they totaled about 2% of the Petrograd working class in February. I'm going to go through them in descending order of size, so the largest to the smallest, the first being the Bolsheviks. Uh, and in Petrograd, by 1917, they were organized with three leadership levels, four if you count the factory level cells. But uh, the first is the district committees. Petrograd is kind of like Venice. It's broken up into a series of interconnected islands or districts. Uh, and the most militant or strongest of those was the uh, Vyborg District Committee. Uh, the second was the uh, Petrograd Committee uh, of the Bolsheviks, which provided citywide leadership. And then the third was concerned with the whole country. It was the All-Russian Bureau of the Bolshevik Central Committee. Um, I'm not going to, don't worry, they're not gonna, I'm not going to keep saying these names as I go, but it's important to just kind of lay that out because there's some conflicts that happen. Um, and in Petrograd at the time of the revolution, the Bolsheviks had 3,000 members in 110 <coughs> cells. Those were mainly based in the factories. The second group was the Mensheviks, and they had a right and a left, they had everything in between the right and the left as well. Um, they, uh, the right helps the bourgeoisie in the coming events and wants is pro-war. The left was internationalist and uh, helped in the February Revolution. They had about four to 500 members with 25 to 30 workplace fractions. Uh, Petrograd is a city of uh, about 400,000 workers, by the way. Um, and uh, the third group, you don't, we don't talk about that much, um, is uh, the Mezrinetsi, or the Interdistrict Committee. And this was a group that essentially existed only in Petrograd. And it was a breakaway faction of social democrats, of Mensheviks and Bolsheviks who s were solidly internationalist and sought the unity of the social democratic movement. Trotsky, this is the group Trotsky joins when he returns uh, after the February days. Uh, and in, in, in February, they had a few hundred members, seven district committees, 16 factory cells, and a couple of campus branches. I don't think they called them campus branches. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
The fourth group is the SRs. The war created an enormous rift for the socialist, I'm sorry, the socialist revolutionaries or SRs. Um, they also had a big rift between the right and the left, the right being solidly pro-war, the anti-war left orienting um, on the army and making connections with other socialists to carry out anti-war activity. At the time of the revolution, many of the SRs in Petrograd had actually just been rounded up uh, by the czarist uh, police. Um, although in the previous year, they had five to six hundred members and 30 cells that were mainly concentrated in a few factories. Um, individual SRs that escaped arrest uh, during the February days link up with other revolutionary organizations, in particular the Mezronetsi, to be more effective. And the fifth group is anarchists, and there were individuals and small groups of anarchists who also coordinated activities. I'm going to refer to these five groups broadly as the left socialists, and that obviously papers over some real political differences uh, among these groups. But it highlights, I think, some key unifying factors, which are these groups were strongly against the war, they were strongly against the autocracy, and uh, leading up to 1917, they had collaborated for years at the shop floor level. Uh, they also faced intense repression. From the start, once the war started in 1914, um, uh, repression, the czar stepped up, what was a, not exactly an open society before that. Um, and it got even worse because class struggle collapses. So the average career of an underground activist after the war starts was reduced to three months. You get to Petrograd, you're an activist, after th 90 days, you're done. Um, these organizations, though, many, most of them were cadre organizations, in particular, obviously, the Bolsheviks. So they continued to organize and develop leadership networks that were rooted on the shop floor. And they also sought every legal means they could, to, they could find to organize. So there were insurance organizations, trade unions of a certain kind, workers' cooperatives, and cultural educational clubs and circles. Um, and as Russia began to suffer defeats in the war, class struggle picks up again in 1915, and socialists are there. Uh, in fact, in one report on a major strike in 1915, the Okhrana, the secret police, said it was caused by, quote, one, the presence of a social democratic organization and its intensive activity, and two, the excessive increases in the cost of necessities. Socialist parties in Russia had a tradition of calling one-day general strikes on dates important to the socialist movement, so holidays like May Day or memorials of massacres such as Bloody Sunday, which was January 9th. Uh, that, that was a massacre that kicked off the 1905 revolution, um, or in protest of government persecution, such as the Bolshevik Duma members who were tried for treason uh, in early 1915. And in Petrograd, these strikes would often develop through a process called calling, called calling out, known as calling out, uh, where one plant would go on strike and it would march past other plants, demanding that the workers there come out on strike as well, sometimes just invading those factories and forcibly shutting down production. Uh, Petrograd's high density of workers <coughs> and factories made this a fantastic tactic. Um, and that's why uh, also socialists, as a result of the, that kind of lay of the land, targeted uh, the largest factories for organizing. These were the ones with the most social power in that situation. Uh, they tended to act as motors for class struggle, um, and they were the ones that time and time again went on strike calling out other workers. Uh, that kind of general picture, I think when you look at that and you look at the actual record of left socialists in the war years, the overall impression is one of an amazingly dedicated and varied group of comrades who self-selected to build a network of internationalists that sought every opportunity to struggle that they could find. Um, that's sort of in a nutshell myth one, that there were no socialists there. Um, the second myth is that no one knew that a revolution was coming. <coughs> in fact, from 19, late 1916 on, there was a general sense that revolution was imminent. 
Um, all the left socialist groups' propaganda begins to speak of impending revolution, which is something they hadn't done prior to then. Um, and you know, why did they think this? Well, there was a rising tide of class struggle. I'll give you one example, and obviously you don't form a perspective based on just one strike, well, not a good perspective, based on one strike or example, but um, this, this, this is the kind of thing that was in their thinking. So there was a strike to defend Baltic Bolshevik sailors who were on trial, um, and the strike started on October 26, 1916. It lasted for three days, 80,000 people came out by the third day, and the Tsar responded initially by locking out workers. He then had to back down and actually remove the threat of the death penalty in the trial in the midst of a war. Um, and it showed the Bolsheviks the kind of influence they had and the fact that they could mobilize wider layers. And it was those kinds of activities in mind, um, they actually decided to reestablish a Russian bureau of the Central Committee. I'm just going to call it the Russian bureau so I don't go crazy. Uh, and it, there's uh, three comrades come back, sneak back into the country. They've been in exile and they helped form that. Um, and momentum continued to build. In fact, that's why in mid-November of 1916, these various left socialist groups form, uh, recognize that they need better structure to improve their collaboration, and they form an informational bureau, bureau uh, whose purpose, according, according to the Okrana, was to, quote, lead upcoming demonstrations. Uh, and that's what they do. Their first demonstration was on January 9th, Bloody Sunday, uh, 1917, to, to commemorate it on 1917. Um, there's 140,000 strikers come out, which is 40% of the Petrograd uh, workers. Um, and that was twice as large as the previous year's strike. Even some army regiments actually came out and cheered on the marchers. And so socialists were assessing that at the end of the day, and they, that's, that's pretty cool, doubling. But um, <laughs> they also felt there were some weaknesses in the day. Although 140,000 strikers came out, most of them went home. They weren't politically engaged. They didn't take part in demonstrations. So there weren't a lot of demonstrations that day. The ones that did occur were easily dispersed. That becomes very important in about six weeks. Um, but by early 1917, the war economy was making Petrograd workers miserable, right? Inflation was rampant. Wages couldn't keep up. Housing was hard to find. Work hours were longer. And the city starts to run out of food. And rations are getting cut. Um, so leading up to the February 23rd, to the start of the revolution, a range of other forces call and lead strikes. Um, in fact, the Bolshevik leadership that's in exile is getting back reports about all this stuff. Uh, and they, even though they're not there, they realize that revolution is a near-term near possibility. So in Switzerland, Krupskaya, who's a longtime Bolshevik, married to Lenin, uh, she wrote to a friend on February 6th, which is 17 days before the start of the February days, uh, quote, You'll have to get to Russia right away, or else you won't get in on the beginning. In all seriousness, the letters from Russia are filled with good news. Just yesterday, one came from an old friend, a highly experienced person who wrote, quote, The difficult period is passing. A turn for the better can be seen in the mood of the workers and educated young people. Organization is poor because all the adults are either at the front or subject to call-up. The influx of women and adolescents into the workforce is lowering organizational capacity, but not the mood. Even so, organizations are growing. Um, you know, that, that's just one example. I, when, when you look at the weeks leading up to the 23rd, I think what emerges is a pattern of continuous, coordinated socialist organizing against the government and its policies. And that's myth two. Uh, I think socialists were there. They did know revolution was a real possibility. Uh, which takes me to myth three. Um, and that's that revolutionary organization played no useful role in February. Sure, they might have been there, but they were on the sidelines the whole time. Um, I want to go through the first few days of the revolution and draw out the crucial role that organization did in fact play. So let's start on the 23rd. And let's start with one thing we all know. 
It's International Women's Day, which is a socialist holiday. Uh, in fact, it's the next socialist holiday after January 9th, the next major one. Uh, and that's why, in response to this developing revolutionary situation, uh, in the weeks leading up to that, the left socialists decided to make a huge push for strikes on that day. Uh, in fact, the Mezronetsi began agitating for this in the Informational Bureau in December to prepare for the 23rd, raising slogans around the issue of bread and an end to the war, things that the system could not fundamentally deliver uh, at that moment, so that they, those have the potential to be revolutionary demands. Um, that, I should say, that was not the unanimous approach of the left socialists. In particular, the Bolsheviks were split on this question. So the Vyborg District Committee, very strong for going out on the 23rd. The Russian Bureau, on the other hand, <coughs> wanted to target May Day instead. Um, that's about eight weeks later. Uh, they wanted that to be the day for mass strikes and used the 23rd instead for preparatory actions, sort of smaller demonstrations uh, and the like. Uh, and that's an argument that's put forth to show that the Bolsheviks were out of touch. You know, they even urged people not to strike. Um, I think. Uh, the fact is that all of these forces saw that revolution was imminent, uh, and when events, in fact, proved the Russian Bureau wrong, they shifted, and I'll, I'll get to that uh, in a couple of pages. Um, so, the 23rd. That morning, before the strikes began, a police officer arrested a member of the Mezronetsi who was distributing leaflets calling for a strike to honor International Women's Day. Uh, and that's obviously not just one lone individual operating under an autocracy <laughs> in war conditions, right? They, this is clearly a leaflet that was printed and distributed widely around the city. A few hours later, women workers at five textile plants go out on strike, and they head to nearby factories and, in the Petrograd tradition, call out other workers. These women are kind of special. The day before, they met with some Bolsheviks to have a study group on the meaning of International Women's Day. <laughs> and if you think about that, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> These are the same women involved in the walkout, you know, <laughs> kicking off the revolution. Now, they, they were meeting with Bolshevik leadership that had the May Day perspective, uh, so it actually urged them not to strike and just have demonstrations. Once the strike's a, a, a fact on the ground, uh, they, these same Bolsheviks actually were instrumental in arguing within their factories to come out uh, in solidarity. So the one of the first plants the women get to is the Erickson plant. And as they approach, Erickson socialists had an emergency meeting to decide on a policy for relating to the strike. These are the Bolsheviks, the SRs, and the Mensheviks in the plant. An SR worker described the scene, quote, we quickly assembled at the office of the workers' medical fund, 10 or 12 of us, the leading core of the plant. We raised the question, should we strike? If we strike, should we take to the streets to demonstrate and call out other plants? We queried each other about the moods at other factories and whether a decision had been made anywhere to strike and take to the streets. Despite the absence of assurance that other factories would go out, the decision to strike and take to the streets and utter the slogans, down with the autocracy, down with the war, give us bread, was unusually quick and unanimous. <laughs> young boy, it's sick that young boys were there, but young boys were the first to hear of the decision to go out, and shouting joyfully, they ran through the workshop, stop work, to the meeting. A plant-wide meeting falls, follows, political motivation for the strike occurs, there's a vote, they all go, agree to go out, they actually call out arsenal workers next. And that's the scene that's repeated elsewhere throughout the day in Petrograd, um, work, well, primarily in the Vyborg district. Workers move throughout that district and head for the city center, not just kind of milling about uh, in the streets. It took police until seven o'clock that night to, dis, uh, to disperse them. Although, you, you, I should note that um, 75 percent of workers didn't strike, only 25 percent of workers went out that day, which was less than on January 9th. But that night, 
when socialists met to assess the day's events and decide on next actions, they, real, they, faced, they felt they faced a new situation. Uh, and they had, there was a bunch of things that went into that analysis. One was that more people came out to the actual demonstrations than on the 9th. Uh, and that they pushed militantly to get to the city center, to, to Nevsky Prospect. Um, the set, another thing was that the slogans that were put forth by socialists, directly linking the war, hunger, and ending autocracy, were taken up by the crowds quite widely. Um, discipline in the army was showing cracks, with Cossacks passively refusing to attack crowds. This is the day before the famous, if, if people are familiar with it, the, uh, the wink that a Cossack makes. But even on this day, Cossacks are kind of just not doing very much as, as these demonstrations are happening. And of course, the ruling class is clearly paralyzed right now with the doom and the czar unable to balance the pressures of war and a shortage of food. So one attendee of the, Vi the Viborg District Committee calls all the comrades in the district together to have a uh, emergency branch meeting. I'm not sure what, what the right terminology is. But uh, w one of the members of the district committee uh, wrote that it, quote, dragged on until late evening and adopted a series of important decisions, such as strengthening agitation and forming ties among soldiers, acquiring weapons, continuing the strike, and organizing a demonstration on Nevsky on February 25th. It was recommended that all the comrades go to the factories in the morning, not take up work, and after a brief meeting, lead as many workers as possible to an anti-war demonstration at Kazan Cathedral, Kazan Square. Um, our agitation was facilitated wonderfully by the objective course of things. To overthrow the autocracy was, in everyone's mind, a perfectly comprehensible act. That's on the 23rd. On the 24th, the day opens with meetings at the factories. Uh, and consistently, the different socialist groups united to help lead these meetings. Uh, and their agitation ex helps expand the strike. So the, the factories that went out on the 23rd again vote to go out, stay out on the 24th, and new ones join in in the strike. The strike doubles in size. It becomes the largest strike in Petrograd since the start of the war. Um, and on just the second day of the strike, the Mezronetsi distributed a leaflet calling for the end of the war and the establishment of a social democratic republic. I'll read you a small part, part of that leaflet. Quote, hunger will not be eliminated by sacking shops or marching on the Duma. Revolution alone will lead us out of the blind alley of war and destruction. Organize, comrades. The day of reckoning with your inveterate enemy is at hand. This is one leaflet of many to be printed in the coming days. These things were printed in the thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, distributed all over the city, passed from worker to worker, read out to crowds. Um, and during that day, there are four rallies at Kazan Square, each broken up by police, but each bigger than the last. That evening, District Bolsheviks met uh, to plan strikes for the next day. Um, also, the Russian Bureau <laughs> met, was re meeting several times during the day, um, and they voted to expand slogans to target the army, increased fraternization with soldiers, and they also sent some comrades to Moscow to make contact with uh, Bolsheviks there. Which takes us to the 25th. Again, the day begins at factories with political meetings to prepare for events. Um, a Bolshevik named Kondrativ described a rally at one factory. Workers were sitting everywhere on ceiling trusses on top of half-finished products. Quote, the speakers were Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, and socialist revolutionaries. The slogan was March to Nevsky. That is the slogan that two days prior Bolsheviks have been arguing that's what we should lead with. Um, the slogan was to march to Nevsky. One speaker ended with the revolutionary verse. Out of the way, obsolete world, rotten from top to bottom. Young Russia is on the march. <laughs> the atmosphere was tense. There was comradely enthusiasm. We would live or die together in the struggle. And workers voted, headed out, joined up with other strikers, and went towards Nevsky. Strikes spread that day outside of factories to take in the whole working class, cabbies, store clerks, electricians, government workers, printers, and so on. Um, meanwhile, while that's happening, the Duma, the 
bourgeois rump parliament. I'm not quite the best way to describe them, but uh, scumbag. They uh, <laughs> they met to discuss the problem of left socialists. They called them irresponsible elements uh, that were leading the masses and what they could try to do about it. And they spend the next few days wringing their hands about that. Um, that evening, the left socialists meet again, um, and the Okrana had an agent on the Viborg District Committee. Uh, once this revolution is successful and they crack open the files, this guy doesn't live very long. But uh, right now he's alive and he files a report that's useful for us. Uh, he, he outlines the committee's assessment of the day. Um, and th this, is, this is what revolution, this is what the Bolsheviks district committee was thinking. Quote, since military units did not block the crowd and in some cases even took measures to paralyze the police, the masses grew confident they would not be punished. Now, after two days of parading the streets unhindered, with revolutionary elements raising the slogans, down with the war and down with the government, the people are encouraged to think that a revolution has begun, <laughs> that success is on the masses' side, and that the authorities are powerless to suppress the movement because the military refused to support them. They believe final victory is near because military units will tomorrow, if not today, openly side with the revolutionary forces and the incipient movement will not subside and will grow uninterruptedly until final victory and the government is overthrown. Cool perspective. <laughs> <laughs> um, left socialists in general uh, agreed on agitating for continuing the strikes you know, with that kind of approach, that kind of attitude about what was going on. They set the morning of the 27th as the date to elect factory representatives to a Soviet. Um, another police report that day noted that troops sent to crush workers were fraternizing with them and fraternizing with them instead, and sometimes even encouraging the strikers. Um, it continued, quote, if a moment is lost and the leadership is transferred to the high echelons of the revolutionary underground, the events will take the widest scale. And so that night, the police arrest the entire Bolshevik Petrograd Committee, along with a hundred other revolutionaries. Um, and the Russian Bureau actually asked the Viborg District Committee to step up to fill that political vacuum. So. The Bolshevik leadership then urges their comrades to recruit, urges the comrades to recruit more factory workers to the party and continue agitation against the Tsar. They print up a leaflet, which they hand out to everybody. This is similar, I think, to uh, in the ISO national leadership can you know we will regularly hands out uh, IS distributes ISO notes to kind of provide a national political lead. This was the citywide lead that people got. Imagine getting this. But, <laughs> <laughs> Strikes, mass meetings, and demonstrations will strengthen, not weaken this organization. Take advantage of every opportunity. As much as possible, be with the masses, delivering your revolutionary slogans. Our salvation lies in immediate universal struggle. Do not postpone it to a later date. One simple action must grow into a national revolution that could foster revolution in other countries. We have a struggle in front of us, but victory awaits us. Everyone must be under the red banners of, a re of revolution. Down with the Tsarist monarchy, long live a democratic republic, long live the eight-hour day, all landowners and states to the people, down with the war, long live the brotherhood of workers of the entire world. Many leaflets that get handed out uh, end with different versions of those slogans. I'm not going to read them every time. Um, <laughs> you probably do a whole talk on how those slogans changed over, over the course of the revolution. Um, anyways, they also distributed a leaflet to uh, the soldiers that night, urging them to join with the workers. Um, and then the next day dawns. It's February 26th. It's Sunday, and the city is quiet. Uh, Streetcars aren't running. During the night, the army set up machine guns at key intersections in the city. Um, the Mezrinetsi distribute two leaflets that morning, one targeted to workers, the others to soldiers. Uh, to the workers, they urged them not to ignore orders that had come down to return to work, and to the soldiers, they asked them to follow the example of the Cossacks and defend the workers. Factories are closed that day, so workers couldn't use them as organizing points. Instead, they met in the major streets in their districts and headed for Nevsky. 
This is a dark day for the revolution, though. Four major shooting incidents happen, um, all done by the Tsar's elite troops, the so-called training detachments, because they trained other soldiers. Um, and this came after the Tsar cabled the capital and said, use whatever force necessary to stop the demonstrations. So at this point, I think that the socialists provided a key backbone to the movement, because this raises the question, is this 1905 all over again? Is this the moment of reaction? You know, what's going to happen tomorrow when the factories uh, try to open again? So the left socialists met and to discuss strategy next steps. There were, I think there were a lot of meetings that day. I only have records of a couple of them. Um, at one meeting, there were 28 Bolsheviks and Mezronets, I'm sorry, 27 Bolsheviks and Mezronets and one police agent. Um, and uh, that police agent filed an Okrana report to, that they, um, adopted a resolution, th these, these uh, comrades adopted a resolution to step up agitation among the soldiers, continue strikes and demonstrations, and quote, carry them to the ultimate extreme. It further related their plans to gather weapons by forming small squads and mugging cops to take their guns. <laughs> I don't know if that happened or not. Um, another police agent attended a meeting of 50 uh, left socialists. And this report, I think, is incredibly important in giving you a sense of um, the level of engagement and confidence and um, uh, co conscious organization that was involved in, in, in these events and, and the resolve of revolutionaries not to lose momentum. He wrote, quote, and this is the day before the mutiny begins and the Soviet is formed. Quote, it should be borne in mind that tomorrow the workers will appear at the factories, but only to assemble, agree what to do, and again move into the streets in an organized and planned fashion in hopes of achieving complete success. At present, the factories are serving as vast clubhouses. Therefore, temporarily closing the factories, even for two or three days, would deprive the masses of information centers where experienced speakers electrify crowds, regulate actions in individual factories, and coordinate and organize the demonstrations. He continued, they are planning to form a Soviet of workers' deputies. Elections to it will evidently take place at the factories tomorrow morning, and already by evening it may be operative. This is another reason why all factories must be shut down to prevent meetings tomorrow morning. I'm happy to say that uh, apparently this report, you know, in the chaos of the events, fell on deaf ears. Um, 27th comes, now it's the 27th. This is the last day I'm going to talk about in, in, in specific. This is the day of the soldiers' uprising. And so far, socialists have played a key role in agitating and unifying workers. Uh, but a major lesson socialists drew from the defeat of 1905 was the need to win over the army to unite with the workers. Uh, and given that perspective, I think it's fair to ask what kind of, you know, what did they do? How did they agitate among the soldiers? And I will say that the evidence here is contradictory. On the one hand, there are writings, including from the two NCOs that led the first regiment to mutiny that day, and they wrote that, that, that no revolutionary parties played a role, that it was just their spontaneous initiative. And they even published this in 1917. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at the day's events, I think a different picture emerges. Um, and I'll go through about five reasons why I think that is. Uh, first of all, for a spontaneous uprising, there was a lot of advanced planning. Um, there were at least two left social strategy meetings before this day that named the 27th as the date of the uprising. Additionally, there was a police agent serving with the 2nd Baltic Fleet Marines. Um, they were stationed in Petrograd, and he filed a report 36 hours before the uprising stating that the group he was in planned to mutiny at 6 a.m. on February 27th, <laughs> seize weapons, arrest officers, and take, quote, further action. <laughs> that, in fact, happens. It's the first mutiny of the day, and it was led. Two of the three leaders of it were SRs. 
Then there's the progress of the mutiny itself, how it unfolded. Um, after the first four regiments revolt, and uh, they were in barracks that were right next to each other on a, on a big uh, street in, in Petrograd, um, they, you know, they go one, two, three, they come out of the fourth uh, barrack. They could have turned to the right or the left, not metaphorically, like actually turned to the right or the left. And they chose to turn to the right, which was not metaphoric, it was, which is good, and they headed towards uh, the Vyborg district, um, which was the heart of the left socialists, the heart of the strength of the working class. At the same time that they're marching towards the Vyborg district on this road, towards this bridge, workers, strikers in the Vyborg district are marching towards them. They meet at the bridge, mill about for a while, I don't know what was said, uh, but a large section of those workers and soldiers together now march back the way the soldiers came, back into Petrograd, the heart of the city, go to, pr uh, go to a prison, free 918 prisoners, <laughs> then march on the city armory, killing the general guarding it, seizing 70,000 weapons, and arming the workers of Petrograd. So I guess we do know what they call <laughs> I think it's reasonable to assume that socialists had some influence there. <laughs> the other thing to say, another thing to say about this is that it did take, it wasn't, the mutiny didn't just happen. It took 48 hours to unfold. And when you go, when you mutiny, like, that's it. You, you know, you've either got to win or you're dead. And um, the, as the mutiny spread, like, over that 48 hours, there was relentless propaganda towards soldiers at barracks all over the city. And it was socialists printing up those leaflets and, and deliver, you know, join with your brother soldiers, join with the, your workers. This, you know, if the czar comes and kills us, he's going to kill you too. You have to join with the. And, you know, I don't know what the response in the, inside the barracks was to those leaflets. Um, I do know that, you know, the entire garrison did come over <laughs> the 48 hour period. Um, the uh, Nikolai Sikhanov, in his uh, famous memoirs on the Russian Revolution, wrote, quote, One thing is certain there were great numbers of politically conscious and party elements in all units of the Petersburg garrison who not only were capable of taking up the movement, becoming its center, and lending it the inspiration of political generalization, but their doing so was inevitable. Um, and the last thing to sort of paint this alternate picture was that a couple days later, when soldiers elected representatives to the Soviet, six out of the ten elected were members of revolutionary socialist parties. Another three were former workers in an, an army that was majority peasant. Um, and that takes me to the, sort of the last major myth or, or argument, which is, um, yeah, that is the end. Okay, so. Uh, I think socialists did play a role <laughs> in the February days. Uh, the last argument usually made to defend the spontaneity thesis is that if left socialists really had leadership uh, in the revolution, they should have had leadership of the Soviet, uh, and they should have prevented a bourgeois provisional government from forming. Instead, the Bolsheviks only had about 10% of the initial seats in the Soviet. I'm going to look at this, and then I'll conclude. Um, that's true. The bourgeoisie basically, in many ways, wins the day in February. But I think the interesting question is why? Because even if you don't agree with me that you know rev left socialists played a key role in the events, I don't think anyone's arguing that the bourgeoisie picked up guns, headed out into the streets, and led the charge to overthrow the czar. And yet they found themselves in a leadership position. Um, so I think what it pays to look at the circumstances surrounding the founding of the Soviet. Because there were actually at least two different calls for Soviets that went out. Um, the first came, uh, the first and the successful one, came from a group of mainly Mensheviks uh, and some SRs, notably Kerensky. Uh, and they issued a proclamation on February 27th at 2 o'clock, about up to in the afternoon. It, uh, uh, there's about 15% of soldiers of mutiny at this point. Um, and these are all the right-wing Mensheviks. These aren't the left-wing one, left ones in the streets. Um, and they issued a call for elections, excuse me, for a Soviet to meet at the same palace that the Duma met. Um, and that was because they wanted the Soviet to act as a pressure group on the bourgeoisie. 
That same day, another call went out uh, from the Viborg District Committee and probably other socialists. It's become known as the Finland Station document. It's not that long. I'll read you the whole thing. Um, just to give you a sense of the, the sort of the competing ideas that were happening. Uh, comrades, the long-awaited hour has arrived. The people are taking power into their own hands. The revolution has begun. Do not lose a single moment. Create a provisional revolutionary government today. Only organization can strengthen our forces. First of all, elect deputies, have them make contact with one another and create, under the protection of the armed forces, a Soviet of deputies. Bring over to our side all soldiers still lagging behind. Go to the barracks themselves and summon them. Let the Finland station be the center where the revolutionary headquarters will gather. Seize all buildings that can serve as strongholds for our struggle. Comrade soldiers and workers, elect deputies, forge them into an organization for the victory over autocracy. Good writers. Um, these are two competing calls for Soviets, one from the right, one from the left. And the one from the left you know, said, called on soldiers to meet in the Vibor district, in the heart of the strength of, of, of the working class, uh, well, called on workers and soldiers. And that fails. No one really shows up for it. Um, and you know, the spontaneous argument would say, well, see, that's because they had no leadership. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. I just want to also note that the left socialists didn't just sit around at Finland Station talking to each other, pretending to be a Soviet, when it was a done deal that the Menshevik Soviet was reflecting the will of the class. <coughs> that's where they went. Uh, in fact, they shifted at various points. So Skalov, who was a Bolshevik worker, actually explained why he led a group of insurgents to the Duma on the 27th. I felt, he wrote, quote, I felt that I acted correctly when I didn't go to the Finland station. When we went to the palace, we saw a note, I can't remember from what organization it came, inviting all workers to gather at the Finland station. By such self-isolation, we would immediately have opposed our own very weak organizational forces to those of the State Duma, and by this would have untied its hands, giving it full freedom of action and independence with all the consequences. We could not go against the Duma on the 27th, nor was there any reason to. We were too weak organizationally. Our leading comrades were in jails, exile, and emigration. Therefore, it was necessary to go to the Duma to pull it into the revolutionary current, to create revolutionary chaos, to terrorize all initiative of the Duma directed against revolutionary action. And this was possible only by being inside the Duma, filling up, so to speak, all its cracks with revolutionary reality. And that's sort of the competing, you know, for people trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Um, now, still, why did he find so many workers at the Duma? Why weren't they at Finland Station? Uh, I think there's three big reasons for this. The first is the Mensheviks had a legitimate-looking call, which was widely publicized. I mean, they are socialists, at least on paper. Um, their call was printed in the only paper, the only workers' paper, to appear, or only paper, actually, to appear that day in all of Petrograd, and it was distributed all over the city. And it seems kind of logical, right? Socialists in Russia have said, for years, have said that there needs to be a bourgeois government. Uh, it only makes sense to have the Soviet be right, keeping an eye on it, right, right where it's going to meet. Um, the second reason is uh, the differences between these two Soviets, and I didn't read the other call, but uh, it doesn't really mention anything about who's going to have power. Uh, the difference between those, while that was clear to the more politically conscious and active workers who had started the revolution and sort of been the backbone of it, um, you now had the Soviet was representing the whole working class of, of Petrograd, and that brought into you know, layers of people who had never necessarily been politically active. They hadn't le learned some of these lessons. Um, in contrast to that, the Viborg metal workers overwhelmingly elected uh, Bolsheviks as their representatives continuously. Um, and then the third reason is that's where the soldiers went, and they're the defenders of the revolution. They went to the Duma to seeing it as the seat of legitimate non-Tsarist government. Keep in mind, right? They're they're in the midst of treason. They're committing, you know, they're they're doing mutiny. Uh, they're a little scared they're going to get killed, and they want 
some kind of legislative approval for their actions. Uh, and the workers also fear the Tsar returning. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, at one factory, workers elected to the Soviet a spinner who had been active in the 1905 revolution. He begged to be let off the hook, explaining he now had a wife and he didn't want to be exiled again. Um, at the Thornton Mills, the workers there elected a factory committee as a slate, and one of their motiv main motivations was, quote, they are, by the way, all single. <laughs> you know, in that atmosphere, you're going to go where the soldiers are. Um, <laughs> the workers just weren't ready for uh, a workers' government yet. On March 2nd, at, this, uh, at the uh, Duma building, uh, at the palace, at that Soviet, the Bolsheviks uh, pushed for the Soviet to declare itself the provisional revolutionary government and deny legitimacy to the bourgeoisie's attempts to form a government. And they failed. Uh, instead, the Soviet votes overwhelmingly for dual power to recognize the bourgeoisie's provisional government and to work with it. And left socialists at that point knew that the situation had to ripen. A uh, left SR leader described his feelings sitting in the Soviet at the moment of this vote. Quote, the most sensitive of the Bolshevik delegates refrained from speaking. For was this the place at this moment to express one's disbelief? Not to convince, but only to darken human joy. Joy that for many was the first. I envied these people who believed so sincerely that it was all over, that the revolution was completed, the last bullets will be fired, and a whole new way of life will begin to flow in a broad, powerful current, and we will gather in the fruits of the February exploits. But I could not help feeling that it was not so, that ahead lay a difficult path, one through which it would not be so easy to cut with a single blow as the first knot had been cut in the February insurrection. And that's, that begins dual power. And many people probably know, over the coming months, the majority of the working class, uh, in the face of lived experience, comes to agree with the Bolshevik position. Um, that, that takes me to my conclusion. I just want to resummarize the main argument uh, that I'm making here, which is that despite the myths, revolutionary socialist cadre were integral to the February Revolution. They planned for it, they agitated for it, they were accountable to each other and their organizations. They tried to generalize and extend every action of workers. And over the course of months, they saw the combativity and confidence of the Petrograd working class increase. So they targeted a socialist holiday for a mass strike. And when they detected that the masses were more confident, more militant, that the army's discipline was weakening, they pushed. They met repeatedly during the days of the revolution to assess events, debate next steps, and coordinate further activity. They issued leaflets calling for actions that later occurred from the initial strike to its generalization to relating to the soldiers and so on. And each morning, they met at the factories and politically motivated next actions with the rest of the workers who then voted to do them. These people did what cadre do. They weren't well-known activists or intellectual stars. They weren't committee men who were inherently conservative and constantly needed shifting. These were socialist workers who were bound together in revolutionary organizations with a general plan and strategy and the experience and knowledge to adjust to a rapidly changing situation. Did they make mistakes? Sure. Um, I think things worked out pretty well. Uh, these were not the infallible leaders of Stalinist mythology, but nor were they the faceless masses of anarchist lore. They were real, living, human, breathing, thinking cadre. Uh, and when they came into contact with objective revolutionary conditions, conditions they were part of helping to form, they brought largely Marxist politics to bear with stunning results. And that's the start of the process that leads to October. Like I said before, I don't think it was possible to go straight to workers' power in February. They needed the experience of the next several months, both to see that continuing betrayal of the bourgeoisie as it continued the war and attacked the workers, and to gain a sense of their own power from running factory committees and Soviets. The Bolsheviks were integral to that process. Um, they were the one party that had been uncompromising on the self-emancipation of the world's working class. Uh, in fact, that's why the Mezronetsi, in August, they'd grown to 3,000 members by then. Um, they actually voted as a 
bloc to join the Bolshevik Party, uh, and some of their leaders, join, including Trotsky, join the Bolshevik Central Committee. Uh, and the next month, the Menshevik Internationalists vote to join the Bolsheviks. Um, okay, so beyond an interesting historical question, what does this tell us about today? Uh, well, we know that capitalism produces the kinds of pressures on workers that make revolutionary situations inevitable. And whether those develop into Februarys and then Octobers or some kind of hybrid Feb-tober, uh, <laughs> depends partially on revolutionary socialists, right? And preparation matters. To be implanted ahead of time, to have gained experience from prior activity, to know how to coordinate in a united front. And today, we need a larger left and we need more revolutionaries. In our efforts to help with that project, I think we should draw inspiration from the activities of left socialists in the February days. They showed, they showed the power of cadre organization and the critical role of building that organization ahead of time. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org. <laughs>